Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Short History of War, talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graeme Stewart, about the nature of warfare in ancient Greece and Rome. Professor Jeremy Black, when we research and look at the history of ancient Greece, when we look at the military history, how much can we rely on written history, historians of of the period, um, or really are we um, engaged in a lot of guesswork based on archaeological evidence? Well, I think that's that's a fascinating question. In a sense, we could spend a whole day talking about that. Um, first of all, on the written sources, it needs to be said that although they are limited, there's nevertheless been an extensive exegesis, a lot of textual study. And um, it's not as though you're reading these sources without anything to go with them. Um, They are important. uh, They are different. Uh, Thucydides, for example, is very different to, shall we say, um, the Trojan, uh, you know, um, Homer on the Trojan Wars or Xenophon. Um, But they are all worth looking at. However, as you correctly imply, they would only take us so far. I think it ought to be said that that is not um, unique to Greece. And indeed, in many respects, um, uh, Greece is better provided for than most cultures of that period in terms of sources. I mean, if you were looking at a culture that we know uh, was well-developed, let's say Phoenicia, um, the sources for that are less. Um, and as you correctly say, there is also the issue of um uh, archaeology. Well, the Greek for the Greece, there's been extensive archaeological work, uh, still is. Um, it would be wrong to say there hasn't been archaeological work in other parts of the world, but I think it's fair to say that the scale of that work on uh, the uh, Mediterranean and the Near East um, is greater than that, for example, uh, on India which also had ancient civilizations engaged engaged in conflict. So that you can work on Greece. It's worth pointing out that there have been very differing accounts of the causes of conflict. Um, Some of that scholarship has focused on what one might call material or materialistic considerations, uh, the seizure of resources, uh, the rise and fall of empires linked to determination to control trade routes and such like. And of course, there's a lot of literature uh, link, relating to Thucydides that then has sought to uh, apply that uh, to later um, uh, later societies in conflict or potential conflict, um, Britain and Germany in the early 20th century, maybe China and the United States in the early 21st century. But at the same time, there has been other scholarship that has taken different points of view. For example, there has been work on the classical world that has emphasised the need to engage with the values of those societies, particularly um, religious values, and to think in terms of anthropological models rather than to think of them as sort of early examples of sort of Bradford Mill masters. Mm-hmm. 
Do we know anything about um, early military theorists or strategists as distinct from generalship? Was there a was there a kind of von Clausewitz of the classical world? Um, well, I think it's reasonable to say that there is, and I've discussed this in a number of my works, there is a, a discussion about um, the extent to which you can allow human volition as playing a major role in terms of a world that is determined by, or at least heavily influenced by, providential um, um, factors linked to uh, religious causes. So if you're thinking of Homer, for example, that is very much the case. Now, without implying that with time things improve, that would be a, a, a fatuous notion. I think it's fair to say that the notion that you bring problem upon yourself by ignoring the injunctions of oracles um, is less significant when you're looking at discussions of conflict um, in the 5th or 4th BC, E or BC, than it had been earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, when we think about the wars between Greeks, we, we naturally focus on the conflicts between Sparta and Athens. Um, it's obviously not a, not a mistake to do so, given the importance of these conflicts, but... but uh, should we be thinking in terms of fixed rivalries, or really, if we look at the um, classical period in Greece as a whole, it, it's actually shifting alliances? Yes, it's shifting alliances. It's alliance systems uh, as well, in which within those alliances there are tensions. Um, and so I don't think you should think about uh, any pattern of rigidity. Um but there is, I mean, you know, there is, if you look at it in terms of the actual alliances, it can appear to have a kind of modern characteristic. It can appear to be a precursor of the conflicts between states in late medieval Italy and Renaissance Italy, which, of course, were used by right, subsequent writers, or writers of the time, of course, Guicciardini, but also subsequent writers like Robertson to argue that a new state system developed in that period. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is that, of course, that development of a new state system in the Renaissance period has sometimes been linked by scholars or commentators, particularly those looking for a panoptic account of war, um, with the rise of gun, an application of gunpowder technology um, in Europe. Obviously, gunpowder technology was older, both in Europe and even more so in the Orient. Um, one's not necessarily taking the similar technological uh, role if one's looking at fifth uh, and fourth century PC Greece, but it is fair to say that the relatively large galley fleets that were developed, um, and on top of that, the um, uh, as it were the close packed infantry formations trained to deploy at speed and to advance and fight, um, I think it's fair to say that they can be seen as analogous to a significant enhancement of capability 
but you don't necessarily need to argue that this is a case of one of these putative and often uh, overly sought um, and overly discerned so-called revolutions in 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 uh, in warfare. In in the popular imagination, Athens is this city-state of philosophers and thinkers, which has an army, and Sparta is essentially just a completely militarized society. Um, from what we know, is, is this grossly overdrawn? It's certainly overdrawn. I mean, there were uh, distinctive features about the Spartan system, but, it, you know, the two of them were not the only states in the game. I mean, if you're looking simply at um, city-states with um, linked territory, you would also, for example, uh, for that period, be looking at Thebes or Corinth, uh, neither of which match the um, to the same extent the social models you've uh, um, you've offered for Athens or Sparta. And obviously there are earlier states as well um, that one is looking at, uh, places like, uh, well, most famously, uh, Mycenae, for example. I mean, what's interesting, if you're thinking about the period, I mean, going back to what we're talking about, I mean, what is actually motivating um, these um, uh, these rulers, these elites. Now, if you look at Homer's Iliad, which, after all, is a significant text, but written later, but nevertheless, presumably drawing on a sense of the way to consider bellicosity, it provides an account of the central role of both honour and revenge um, in the causes, the pursuit, and the course of the Trojan War. And the point about honour and revenge is that bridges to the world of the gods. Um, and you know, the thing to bear in mind is that if you think Sparta is bellicose, think about um, the Olympian gods. They're not exactly taking part in a sort of, you know, green discussion about rubbish collections. I mean, there is each are in a warring world, the gods and the Greeks. And I think that in a way that provides um, a way to validate uh, conflict or uh, norms of conflict um, on Earth. Now, as you know, there is this conventional discussion about Thucydides that he, as it were, um, begins an approach to strategy that um, uh, was dominant in the modern world. But the more that we know about the Peloponnesian War, this um, war between Athens and Sparta and their alliance systems between 431 and 404 uh, BC, I think the more that one has to consider that these ideas of honour and status and therefore revenge remain significant. Um, I mean, I would say they remain significant to the present day, but even if you want to downplay that in the present day, they were certainly significant in the period. There's a very interesting book by the American scholar J.E. Lendon called A Song of Wrath, The Peloponnesian War, uh, begins, which um, very much looks at the role of morality um, in, in 
Greek ideas and therefore also in how they measured capability and success, because we shouldn't assume that measures of capability and success are, um, are constant. And other scholars, I mean, Paul Ray, R-A-H-E, who I've met, another American scholar, has been doing very important role work on um, the political culture of the period. And he also points out, I mean, with reference to Sparta, for example, and indeed other Greek states, um, that uh, there's not only the use of force um, against, as it were, what you might term foreign threats, but you also need force at home in, as it were, what you might, if you were a Marxist, call class warfare or whatever else. I mean, helots and slaves have to be uh, held down um, insofar as they are able or willing to threaten rebellion. And remember, one of the great problems we have as scholars today is this infantile idea that slavery was invented uh, in the Atlantic world by the evil Brits, etc., uh, means that it's very difficult to understand the social structure of uh, many, many um, societies and civilizations, including those of the classical world. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think in the, in the sort of Hollywood version, uh, this is kind of sword and sandal world in which over multiple centuries, and throughout the, the Mediterranean, uh, essentially soldiers of the period are dressed in, dressed in the same way with, with similar armaments, shield, spear, sword, breastplate, sandals. Well, we certainly so know that's not true of, for example, shields. There's been quite a lot of work on the development of shields. I discuss that in my book on war and technology. Um, swords, of course, the same. I mean, a sword, you might think of as a sword as a uniform weapon, um, but leaving aside that it can be made from different materials and that the material basis changes. So Mycenae is operating in a different way to, shall we say, Macedon. Um, leaving aside that, there are also particular uh, functions. If you are uh, requiring a sword because you're a light infantryman, you might have a very different need from it from if you are a heavy infantryman or a cavalryman. Um, and obviously, there are basic functions of swords, cutting or slashing, uh, as opposed to stabbing. Um, so, you know, if you just take what appears to be a simple weapon, and it's part of the conceit of the modern age to assume that, as it were, people in the past were stupid and simple. And can I just say, again, going on to the problem of the present day, one of the ways in which history is being made undoable is by the use of the ideology of decolonization, because by validating a present set of prescriptions, it makes past societies appear um, morally, intellectually bankrupt. Now, that, of course, is an absurdity. And in the specific case of military history, it's also extremely unhelpful. Well, I want to um, move from, from Greece to Rome. And oh, well, what about Alexander the Great? Can I just make the point about Alexander the Great? Because Alexander the Great exemplifies what you're talking about. This is why I brought up Alexander. 
Because again, you have issues with sources. Uh, I mean, <laughs> a lot was written about Alexander in the classical world, and still, le- still more subsequently. But he, uh, to put it bluntly, is an enigma, um, and uh, an enigma that's more significant because he captures. Um, the potentially decisive role of individual leadership, as well as the expectation that leaders would be personally involved in the fighting. So Alexander, you could argue, is a is he a prudentialist? Is he somebody who has a quasi-mystical sense of his own mission to transform the rivalry of Greeks and Persians into a new imperial unity? Uh, Is he somebody that, as it were, proceeds by stages, a kind of, you know, muddling through to glory? Um, And or is there some more uh, deep-seated plan? All of those affect how we conceive of his generalship. And with his generalship, in his campaigns, he necessarily has to make uh, a lot of use of horses. What do we know about horses being used, obviously, to bring supplies, but but also to be used on the battlefield? Uh, Well, horses were more significant uh, to the north of the conventional area of major Greek city-states. So if you're looking north of that, you've first got the plains of Thessaly, and then north of that, you've obviously got what becomes the expanding polity of Macedon. Those areas have more grassland, they have more access to horses. In Anatolia, although sort of Asiatic Turkey, although there are dry areas, there is also grassland. And as you will know, Horses had played a role in um, um, Near Eastern conflict for Egypt, for Assyria, uh, even more for the Persians against whom the the Archimede uh, Persian Empire, against whom Alexander uh, campaigns. So the wherewithal is there for horses. Uh, Alexander has a particularly um, uh, decisive use of horses for close in conflict rather than for standoff firepower. You know, as by standoff firepower, I mean standing off and firing, um, uh, you know, uh, bows and arrows. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's talk a, a bit more about um, Roman um, military achievements. Uh, we, we often have, uh, from children's books onwards, the, the image of the Roman legionary. And the Roman legionary will have a picture, and he, he looks the same almost in whatever century is being depicted in. Um, what do we know about how actually a, a typical Roman infantryman uh, was armed and how that armament changed over time? Well, again, and again, I've discussed this in my War and Technology book. Uh, again, there were significant developments, which should not surprise you. Um, there were developments both in terms of weapons. So we've already spoken about shields and swords. There are also developments in terms of um, force composition, if you want to use that modern term, with in particular uh, an increase in the later imperial period of cavalry. Um, And of course, in part, the Romans who were 
Um, you know, the presentation of the Romans is um, rather like of the British army, that it sort of operates in a similar fashion all around the world, well, in the Roman case, in the Roman world. But in practical terms, they did adapt to, to specific environments, um, whether that was the uh, forests across the Rhine, uh, whether it was the um, uh, treeless uh, terrain of eastern Syria. Um, and uh, the point that divisions stayed in a particular area for longer uh, underlined that. Mm. And, and what about the way in which Roman forces on campaign were were supplied? Were they mostly foraging, or was there a, um, a, a well-organised logistics chain for forward planning? Um, yes, they were good at logistics. The Romans were impressive at that. Um, they, of course, used logistics irrespective of war. I mean, in the sense that the city of Rome itself was a logistical triumph with grain in particular brought in partly from Sicily and subsequently also from Egypt and what we would now call Tunisia. So logistics is something the Romans are used to. Obviously, those logistical means are easiest because we are talking there about um, uh, we're talking there about uh, supplies that can be moved by water, and obviously bulk is easiest to move by water. But nevertheless, the Romans were able to operate in lands in which they could not support their forces. Um, you know, in the uh, from local resources, and of course they were helped in that by the development of their road system, by a plentiful use of wagons, um, and by a uh, an impressive taxation system. Well, we're talking to each other from the former Roman colony of Britannia, where there is most impressively Hadrian's Wall, the remains of Hadrian's Wall, but but also. Um, the remains of the Antonine Wall as well. So, I mean, in terms of fortification, we have this image of Romans as wall, wall builders. Uh, what Was this experience um, on the scale that, that happened in Britain unique, or elsewhere did they just rely on forts which were um, connected to one another by roads and earthworks? Oh, no, there were, there were Roman uh, walls elsewhere. Um, there were walls, for example, in southern Germany. Um, there was a wall between um, the Rhine and the Upper Danube. Um, there were um, sort of defensive works on the with the border with the Parthians on the Euphrates. Um, but obviously, uh, there were some areas in which there are not. Uh, long linear uh, positions like this. So, for example, in southern Egypt, there are individual forts, uh, but not a long uh, wall system. Same uh, with the Roman colony of Mauritania, which we would call in sort of northern Morocco. Same with the Roman positions in Algeria. So a lot of it, and then, of course, in some areas, you have the, the value of using our natural frontiers um, insofar as you can. Um, so to a considerable extent, uh, the North Sea acted to protect Britannia from attack, although when that seemed less 
um, secure, the Romans built the forts known as the forts of the Saxon shore to protect particular anchorages on the eastern southern coasts of um, England. And there were actually also forts on the opposite shore. I, I've discussed this there's a section on Roman fortification in my history of forts and fortification. And I also look at that in that at the obverse, which is the Romans had particular skills in siegecraft. Now, those skills in siegecraft um, were more significant when you're up against a society that has the surplus resources and ethos of building fortified positions, which they're then intent on defending um, and, of course, is less significant uh, if you're against different societies. But if you're thinking of Roman siegecraft, you can think of some of the famous ones, like the Siege of Masada or the Siege of Jerusalem. But there is also extensive discussion in the Roman sources of many sieges, places like Syracuse or Marseille, for example. And um, uh, what about the nature of the warfare more generally? I mean, how asymmetric was it? We think, obviously, a lot more about how the Romans were armed and how their tactic, their battlefield tactics were uh, deployed, but uh, less so, not least because the sources are not as good uh, as their various opponents. Um, I mean, what do we know about what their opponents learned from Roman tactics or indeed what their... Uh, what their opponents learned to avoid in their tactics? Well, the Romans tended to try to prefer to come to close quarters. I mean, as you, I think you've got a copy of my short history of war, and I cite in that Tacitus writing about his father-in-law Agricola's victory at Mons Grappius over the Caledonians um, in about 83 AD or CE. And what he says there is Agricola then encouraged three Batavian and two Tungrian cohorts. In other words, these were allied forces. The Romans made, like the British, extensive use of allied forces to fall in and come to close quarters, a method of fighting familiar to these veteran soldiers, but embarrassing to the enemy from the nature of their armour, for the enormous British swords, blunt at the point, are unfit for close grappling and engaging in a confined space. The Romans liked to, club, to come to close contact. What caused them most problems was being shot at from a distance by horse archers, in which a method that the Parthians were particularly um, good at, as in the victory over uh, Crassus at Carhai in 53 uh, BC. Um, and I would say that uh, their opponents had a similar problem to the Romans. You have to uh, be fit for purpose, and your fitness for purpose is not only a question of how you're competing with your opponent, your fitness for purpose is also a matter of how you adapt to the environment and the resources that the environment provide for you and how you adapt to your social structure and how you adapt to your ethos of fighting. All of those are significant and they're not fixed. Um, and of course, you know, you've got in and among that the, the ability of individual uh, commanders to read the battlefield, um, generally agreed, for example, that the famous Roman defeat at the Teutonberger Wald in AD 9 was a matter both of Varus pr proving a very poor um, 
Roman commander and Arminius proving a very good commander from the opposing forces of Germanic tribes. And you could argue the same thing uh, with Hannibal. Uh, Hannibal proved good at seeing the limitations of Roman forces in particular conjunctures, but there is no sign of the obsolescence of a Roman army because Scipio Africanus, um, in turn, is able to beat Hannibal at Zama using essentially the same type of force. So you've got to be very careful of assuming that there is some inevitable outcome because some military system is necessarily better or worse than another. And, and what about um, disorganised opposition? So uh, the Romans fighting pirates and bandits, what sort of proportion of military activity in the Roman Empire was actually fighting these much smaller units rather than uh, an organised opposition? Well, fighting pirates, was partic- although it was defined as pirates, was particularly important in the Mediterranean. And it was that was very significant. And again, if you look at my history of the Mediterranean, I discuss that at some length. Um, if you're thinking about whatever you might term brigands, internal opponents, I would say obviously that the most spectacular example of a social war is the equivalent of the of a major slave rising, like the Spartacus rising. But there are also civil wars under the Roman Republic, which have social components, um, sometimes defined in terms of plebeians versus patricians, though that is overly crude. Um, and obviously, as well, you've got within the Roman elite. Um, the quest for power, both in the later Republic, well, it's happened in the early Republic as well, but we know more about it in the later Republic, people like Marius and Sulla, Julius Caesar and Pompey, and then, of course, under the empire as well, particularly once the Claudian dynasty ends, uh, and you start off with, you know, the four, the four, um, the year of the four um, emperors and all the rest of it. Um, and Vespasian eventually becomes emperor through force. And becoming em- emperor through force um, is a very significant way in which uh, the military have to exercise their activities. And that goes on. I mean, if you think about it, one of well, I suppose we could say one of the most significant battles is the um, battle at the Milvian Bridge in 312 uh, AD, in which Constantine the First uh, defeats his rival Maxenius, and that is, you know, linked to uh, con- uh, conversion, his conversion to Christianity, to the downgrading of paganism. Um, this is a very important result and product of internal violence. So, in the, uh, I'm thinking particularly in terms of the fourth and fifth centuries, as the uh, Roman Empire is fragmenting and collapsing. To to what extent do you feel that the the militarization of power, the dependency of emperors on the support of generals and indeed rival generals seeking to become emperor, was really a large part of the Roman Empire's undoing? Well, I think that's a fascinating question, and we could have a program on the uh, fall of the Western Roman Empire, because the Eastern Roman Empire doesn't fall. I think it's worth bearing in mind um, that generals had fought each other for considerable periods. Indeed, it is a war between generals that leads to the creation of the Roman Empire uh, in the sense of 
um, the imperial-like powers that um, Augustus Caesar uh, wields. So I don't think that necessarily you can say conflict between generals makes the fall of the empire inevitable, uh, because a lot of it plays through in particular contexts. Um, and you might um, argue that it's the, there's multiple factors in military terms, you might argue that it's the failure to hold the Rhine and Danube frontiers, which leads to a serious, you know, leading to the serious defeat at Adrianople in 378, which is the death of the emperor, the emperor's killed, the emperor Valens, then to pressure on Italy. Um, and that proves to be impossible uh, to cope with because of the combination of challenges rather than an individual one. Mm. What is the thinking about the loss of those natural frontiers on the on, on the Rhine and, and the Danube? Well, I think it's fair to say that the notion of a uh, frontier is a complex one. Um, and of course, the Romans had moved beyond uh, uh, what you might think of those. I mean, uh, I once was on a, a, a ship boat going down the uh, lower Danube, and you can see the remains of the Iron Gates bridge, the bridge create, constructed at the Iron Gates in 103 to 105 by Trajan. And it's, um, it was the first bridge built across the lower Danube. It was about uh, 3,730 feet long. Um, it led to the uh, conquest of what the Romans called Dacia, or Romania, we would call it, which was north of the Danube. So the Romans weren't seeing that as an, if you want to use the term, a natural frontier. Um, when um, Augustus sends Varus into Germany, it's not the Rhine that's a natural frontier. It, um, you know, the, the, he's operating to the east of that. Um, there isn't a natural frontier in Britannia. Um, there isn't really a natural frontier in um, what the Romans called, you know, Syria. Um, so I'd be rather wary of that interpretation. I think that is a later interpretation of what is the much more complex uh, way in which the Romans looked at frontiers, which were often a zone, not a line, by the way. And in the, the Eastern Empire, in Byzantium itself, with its famous walls, for the Eastern Empire, did that create a rather defensive culture to be behind these fortified walls, do you think? No. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't think so. I think the, the, um, the Eastern Empire in the early 7th century is just as keen to hang on to uh, Egypt and Syria and to um, fight to the east. Um, so, you know, without there being any particular frontier line, no, I, 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 I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, argue that at all. I mean, the, the Persians of that period with the Parthians have gone, you've now got the Sasanian Persians. Um, the, uh, there, you know, there's no fixed frontier between them and um, the, uh, the Byzantines, the Sassanids, the Sasanian Persians uh, conquer Syria in 611, but they're 
um, uh, defeat in turn, they're defeated by the Emperor Heracles, H-E-R-A-C-L-I-U-S, it's late. Um, and on top of that, um, the um, amphibious operations, which um, in the mid-6th century, um, the Eastern Empire uses to recapture North of Africa, much of Italy, much of southern Spain, um, that doesn't suggest any uh, sense of fixity. And, well, finally, I want to ask, uh, after the fall of Rome, how much the strategy and tactics and means of making war that the Romans had survived as a legacy? What, what, do, what does the archaeology and any other records we can draw on uh, tell us about that, that Roman military legacy? Oh, well, that is really interesting because you're there wandering into one of those wonderful battlefields between uh, historians in which um, light is often uh, less uh, in evidence than smoke. Um, there is a big controversy among the specialists as to how far uh, Charlemagne and the Frankish uh, monarchy, and then indeed also uh, the Etonian successors looked back to Roman models. There is a large amount of controversy as to the size of the armies, of the Carolingian armies, the way in which they fought, the extent to which they were aware of Roman models. And I think it's fair to say uh, that there is no agreement on these uh, points. Uh, the most prominent exponent of the idea of continuity is an American scholar, uh, Bacharach, um, and he is very vigorous on these points. Uh, I think it's fair to say there are other scholars who have been very sceptical, Stephen Murillo, for example. So I think we'd have to say there is an open book on that one. Um, certainly as far as you were referring to Britannia earlier, I think it's fair to say that if you were looking at 8th century uh, Anglo-Saxon England, you don't see much continuity with the Romans and attempts to suggest otherwise are, in my view, unconvincing. Well, we'll leave it there. But Professor Jeremy Black, whose short history of war is published by Yale University Press, for spanning the better part of uh, a thousand years of warfare. <laughs> Thank you very much. Indeed. No, I think actually you were asking me for much longer than that, because if you go from the Trojan Wars to the Carolingians, uh, <laughs> we've gone considerably longer. I think it might be an idea... Um, to reprise some of the discussion of the medieval period, so-called medieval period, next time. But it's been a great pleasure. What I think I would like listeners to take from this is to be very wary of the idea that there are fixed methods of warfare. I mean, I referred to developments in weaponry, there are developments in tactics. It's wrong to think of Greek warfare or Roman warfare. And I've tried in my book uh, to emphasize these points, and I think they are pertinent. Professor Black, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? 
Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website www.thecritic.co.uk.